I'm Brian Hyatt from Rolling Stone, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me today Brittany Spanos and Andy Green from Rolling Stone. And, oh yeah, I also have with me Tegan and Sarah right here in the studio. Oh, hi. hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> it's like you, the way you describe that, it's like we just popped out of your bag. Like, you're like, I brought my friends Tegan and Sarah from home. <laughs> yeah, I, I, before I leave the house, I'm always like, I got my phone, I got my keys. Do I have Tegan and Sarah? And like, yeah. <laughs> That's smart. Everyone should think that you way. You should get those tile things for us and just put them in our pockets. Oh yeah, the finder. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. So uh, I wanted to start in the most random uh point possible, which is great. Tegan, you have um, a tattoo, two tattoos of the lyrics of Bruce Springsteen's Human Touch, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. True fact. <laughs> True fact. And what, which, which lines are they and which, which arm is which? You're wearing a lot of clothing, so we want to ask you to... <laughs> oh, <laughs> to, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know. It's really... I, thought, I it's, thought this was radio. <laughs> I did not have to, to dress like a pop star today. Um, <laughs> I have what you don't surrender, the world just strips away. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I will say that... I love that song. That song means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. It's also like a kind of an uncool Bruce Springsteen song. Don't it's, get out of here. You're <laughs> fired from the podcast. <laughs> from the radio. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it, 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 it's a period that some people like deride and it's not, but I mean, it, it happens to be great. And I'm just curious, like what, what is it about that song and that, and that lyric that... Well, in order to answer your question, I have to broaden the question to more like just Bruce Springsteen in general. And, you know, Sarah and I grew up in a Bruce Springsteen household. My stepdad, who came into our life when we were six, his name is Bruce, and he was obsessed with Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> we listened exclusively to Bruce Springsteen. Every once in a while, we take time to listen to you two. But uh, yeah, we had like framed, giant, lit photographs of Bruce Springsteen in our entryway at our house. And, and um, so I have a deep love for Bruce Springsteen. And there's a parallel, I think, for our career with Bruce Springsteen's career, and that Sarah and I see ourselves as songwriters and artists that will hopefully carry on through you know many many decades and um each of our records sounds a little different because i think we reflect the era we're living in we don't necessarily reflect a genre so i think of ourselves as bruce springsteen in that sense like you listen to ghost of tom Jode or you listen to you know the river or nebraska or born in the usa or more recent work and i don't think that there's anything necessarily that holds those records together except for bruce springsteen himself and i think that's like tegan and sarah I think another parallel is Plus, just, it's a really know, great lyric. It is a great lyric. <laughs> and um, I love that record. <laughs> I, I like, you, you can't shut out the risk and the pain. Uh, we're all riders on that train, but yeah. yeah. Like, without, without losing the love that remains. Um, but anyway, <laughs> we, let's just talk about the lyrics of Human Touch line by line for the next half <laughs> yeah, hour. Totally, like, yeah. totally. Um, <laughs> um, but another parallel is back in the day, back in the Bruce Springsteen, the R.E.M. era, there was this idea that you would, you know, have a bunch of albums that were more for a cult and then uh, it was a natural thing to go for it. There was always the kind of like, let's go and like, I'm gesturing uh, a grand slam, but kind of like, <laughs> you know, the swinging for the fences and you guys in that sort of old fashioned way have done that. And so what was, you? I think you've said that one of the thinking, one of the things that influenced your thinking was Taylor Swift's move from country to pop. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but what was what was the thinking behind the move? I definitely think that there were just albums that became really interesting to us from a just a sonic perspective. Um, Alicia Keys, Robin um, was listening to a lot of electron. I like specifically more so than Tegan was listening to a lot of uh, electronic music and things like really random like Fortet and um, Panther de Prince, like really random stuff. And I was. 
I was the one that sort of initially wanted to move away from guitars. I sort of wasn't feeling as in, interested in the production that was happening on indie rock records. But also that sort of coincided with Tegan's desire to change the sort of um, ambition and goal of the of the project. And she sort of had felt like we had bought into this idea of like indie rock status and, you know, who cares about pop radio? Mm. And, you know, we had sort of done that for about 10 years. And at some point it almost felt privileged you know to 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 say like oh we're not going to try to be a bigger band or we're not going to try to compete with some of our you know peers um we in- felt, i mean the truth is too is that we felt alone in indie rock we felt yeah. a little alienated we were queer women you know playing in a male-dominated industry in a male-dominated genre and you know guitar was an instrument that we learned second we were classical trained piano players we learned guitar second and and so it was a songwriting tool it wasn't my first instrument I am not a good guitar player I am a mediocre guitar player and I felt I was drowning sometimes out there on stage you know I wasn't having as much fun I was so worried about my gear I was like guitar and keyboard and timbre and this (laughs) and that and whatever and I just yeah we got to the end of sainthood and Sarah wanted to change the sound of the band and I wanted to change our goal what's our goal our goal is to reach people we have this incredible community of people that listen to our music there's got to be more people out there who want to listen to us and we were like it wasn't like we were being embraced necessarily by our community at the time we were sort of outsiders and I was like well if we're going to be outsiders let's be outsiders on a bigger stage (laughs) people get grossed out by ambitious people too I mean especially women I mean we're seeing it with the election right now there's so, so much suspicion when a woman wants to be big or successful mm. or dominate you know whereas with a man it's just sort of like yeah he's the best like you know <laughs> genius and, and I think you know for us we started to be like whoa were we were we sort of like were we were we trying to like not offend people or push people by sort of making ourselves not seem like we wanted to be successful and I think there was a there was a time where we were just like we're really ambitious and we're good at this and we want to be bigger than we are there's, it does seem like a time when some boundaries are breaking down. We were talking about the uh, Beyonce Dixie Chicks performance the other night. What did you guys think of that? I mean, I thought it was really cool. I'm terrified of the internet right now, <laughs> and I'm terrified of people and awards shows. And it's been a really tough year in that sense. Like, I yeah. just feel like no matter wh- who you are and what you do, I mean, Beyonce, please don't come after Beyonce. And like the fact that all the news was just, it's all clickbait, you know, but they're like, everyone goes after Beyonce, you know, on Facebook, you know, because she's at the Country Music Awards. And I just, I, I, I just, the world's so crazy. I don't know what to believe. I don't know what to buy into and whatever from just a, a just for me to click on the video and watch her for, I'm just like, she can do no wrong. And I think it's great. And I think we should challenge things. We should, should take down boundaries. I think all music is sort of coming together and influencing each other right now. And so just from that standpoint, I was like, yay. But the coverage of it, I just was like, when is the asteroid coming? Can it speed up? <laughs> that's that's actually, you may not know this, that's the official slogan of 2016. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, the- <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that you, um, you guys brought up the idea of indie rock being alienating because I feel like that's used as this tool of authenticity, like the idea that creating indie rock music, creating like guitar driven music somehow makes you a real musician and you guys yeah. went towards this passion of yours and also felt you didn't be- like you felt like you didn't belong in that community um yeah. well, do you also, feel- pop yeah. music's hard like yeah. that's the other thing that yeah. we should add into that is, is that like yeah like we still play all our own instruments and we still write all our own songs and we still, mm-hmm. you know what i mean like there's something i think we were we it, pop music got a little diluted and 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 kind of got a little cheesy there for a minute and i think people started to think that was all pop music you know so yeah and it's constantly reinventing and it's constantly sure. like going with these new waves and i'm wondering do you feel more accepted in pop music and also 
how did your fans feel when you did make that transition? I get confused sometimes because I think my instinct is always to say I, I do feel more accepted in pop music, but I also wonder if it's because we're less threatening to the people in pop music. Mm. I think that there's more of a legacy of, you know, queer, gender, non-conforming, open-minded people in mm. pop music. And whereas like in indie rock, there really is like a sort of old guard of like, and there's like certain rules in the rock world that I don't think exist in pop music, especially right now because what seems to actually be driving a lot of the production um, right now in pop music is either coming from electronic music, which has its has a real strong history in queer, um, you know, like dance music in the 80s and 90s, and then also in hip hop. And I think, you know, because there's so much there's so much cross pollination happening, it's like there's just less rules. People get excited at the idea of you of you pushing boundaries and being creative. Nobody's like mad at anybody making a pop record. <laughs> that's like well, awesome. some people are mad, but they're called trolls. No, 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 no. I mean, like nobody's like nobody's looking at a pop record and going like, well, they broke the cardinal rule. Whereas like with rock music, I felt like we were always breaking rules and we were always doing it wrong. And sometimes that there was really cool things that came out of that and then there were other times where I was like I just felt beaten down like can we can we like we're never going to be taken as seriously as a guy and so um, I wanted to I didn't mean that didn't scare us away from that music it just made me feel limited or something so I and I and, and with regards to our fans I mean oh my god our first fan letter in 1998 when we started our email you know our first email account was a negative email I mean we were like in 1998 I mean it's like people complain people are mad at you you can most of the people are are so supportive our band yeah is, what's cool about our band is is that and it's in a pretty loving way I see it but like you know there's always there's always going to be voices that come out that are like oh I don't like this or I liked this era better or whatever yeah. but there's always this kind of giant wave of positivity that comes and I hope that that's representative of what I hope we bring to our audience you know we try to have a positive only message online even if it's directing people towards change or organizing and movement um, in the political forum and I think that Sarah and I try to make our music feel like a good place we try to make our shows feel like a community space and and I think that when it comes to criticism online I hope we're encouraging positive reinforcement if you don't like this record that's cool there's seven more that you can listen to you know you don't like you want to come see us play live no problem you'll hear 18 old songs you know like we try to always follow up any criticism with some positivity so I, I, you know, I want to say that there's, it's one thing to say you guys went pop, but you, what you actually did was help create a, a lane in pop because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the particular sound of Heartthrob and now on, on Love You to Death was really a kind of unique 80s influence thing that, uh, you know, some people have argued really was a big influence on, on 1989, and you may have first-hand knowledge that that's the case. <laughs> um, Taylor Swift, 1989, to be clear to listeners. Uh, and then also things like Carly Rae Jepsen, et cetera. But mm -hmm. I, I'm, that particular sound with the synths and, and the certain influences, how did you get there? I mean, it's so boring, such a boring answer, but I think for both of us, we were working in music programs where those are just like the sounds that are readily available. And you're, we record in Logic, and when we were yeah. demoing, it was like, we tweak them. You know, we sort of, I remember even with Sainthood, experimenting a lot with keyboards and Moogs and putting them through guitar pedals. Those were the, those were the, um, the tools that we had. You know, we'd been playing guitar for so long that it made sense to take a keyboard and put it through the same pedal board. And like I literally just, I, I, for Sainthood pre-production, just took my keyboard out and and just took my my giant pedal board out and just ran my keyboard through my pedal board because I was I didn't know how to use any of the keyboard knobs like yeah. that's what I call it. like I just was like I don't know what any of these do but I know what these guitar pedals do <laughs> but so those no but then those sounds they sort of they do they do have a throwback feeling to the to the eighties and I think that 
you know, one thing I will say is that, you know, especially moving forward as a band, I think that we're always looking for a way to not feel nostalgic. Like I don't, I like the idea that we're using influences from the '80s, but I want to make sure that the arrangements and the the messaging is 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 progressive and it's moving forward. And you wouldn't mistake it for something that you heard in 1988 or whatever, you know, or 1989, or 1989, <laughs> yeah, or literally on 1989. Taylor Swift record. I would like to put here uh, drove me wild if if we can because yeah. because I, I think that. Uh, when I hear that, I hear a couple years of pop that followed. Can we, we play the beginning of that? You carried romance in the palm of your hand. You called the play for us. You cleaned us up for strange and far above land. You so, I mean... <laughs> I, I have to say, because it, it, it struck me because I was re-listening to Alma, I was like, God, that did, people kind of took your ball and yeah. ran with it a little but bit. But you know what, that's so exciting. <laughs> it's so exciting. I mean, we, look, I just want to say on record, you know, we um, met Taylor Swift before she went and made 1989 and she was a delight. And she made us um, homemade biscuits and jam and had us come up and play closer, which was really exciting. And she was very vocal in the press about liking this record, which was yeah. very helpful to us. Um, we also worked with Carly Rae Jepsen on her last record. We didn't get a song on the record, but we got to songwrite with her, and it was a delight. She's incredibly talented. She's incredibly... Um, she's just very good. I mean, actually, she's yeah. just really good. We toured with Katy Perry. She's a delight as well. She's yes. really nice. She's All of these women are incredibly intelligent, incredibly articulate about what they want. They're very ambitious. They're great songwriters. And, uh, you know, and all of them gave us props. And, and I think that when we made Heartthrob, we didn't set out to do anything other than really prove that we could challenge ourselves and reach a bigger audience. And a lot of those artists when they started to say that they loved the record and give us props that was really great it was awesome but what was most important to us was that we were able to travel around the world reach more people we saw no diversity on pop radio when it came to women we did not see any queer women being represented in the mainstream and so our goals like Sarah said we set out with certain new goals but we immediately were like we want to try to change the face of pop music even if it ends up not being us and all we did was create a lane like you said great then I hope a lot of people get on that lane and, and hopefully it's we see more diversity out there. It's really flattering too. Like I remember hearing after we put out Walking with a Ghost in 2004, you know, I remember hearing stuff that combined acoustic instruments, organic sounds and like synths and, you know, sort of shouty more, maybe more like, like masculine sounding female vocals. I remember thinking, oh, I'm hearing this. Is this, did we do this? Or is this just like <laughs> everybody's on the same wavelength? And I really subscribe to the idea that there's a collective consciousness. I don't even think that people are trying to rip each other off. I think that it's just like, if you're alive, you're influencing and being influenced by a lot of the same things. And so it makes sense that a bunch of us all end up start sounding, start sounding the same. So yeah. 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 So one of the things that that fascinates me is that um, you were doing your kind of indie rock show, and then when you made your shift towards a pop thing, you got a music director, mm -hmm. right? And I, I'm always fascinated by the general idea of the music director in, in, in shows, and and so I felt like you guys would have the, one of the best insights because you have done it kind of both ways, <laughs> the, the rock way and the. So what what does it what does that do? I what, think rock is the only genre that doesn't have musical directors. Yeah. like to be fair, literally. like just for the record too, like there's. It's not a. It's not like a, like one size fits all <laughs> job either. It's like yeah. sort of like production. You know, like when people talk about producers, there's all kinds of producers. There's like the, there's the guy that comes in and does everything and tells you what to do <laughs> and whatever. And then there's just like, our experience, which has been so collaborative and. 
And a lot of times we we use these people, whether it's a musical director or a producer, to just uh, you know to edit like there's there's somebody who can like have a have a have a really zoomed out view of things so with our musical director um his name is chris and he we we sort of found him through katie perry's camp but what he does for katie perry's camp i'm sure is unique and very specific to what she needs and for us we needed somebody to take eight albums worth of material and find a cohesive you know palette of instrumentation and you know and and sort of do that in a in a way where the technology all sort of works together and is able to sort of uh, select the from those songs what are the important sort of melodic elements and the, the instrumentation that is important that we can cover off and then sort of clean out the tracks and the backing tracks and sort of assess the show in that way so it's like you know it's a, it's actually a real skill it's yeah. a real it's skill like decluttering in and our when world. we were like you know like an indie rock band we first of all we weren't using any tracks we weren't using any background vocals we were just like okay there's five of us you take that part you take this part like you know there was a it was a really easy thing to do but as you're sort of starting to build the show and that this also connects to like what the lighting person does what the stage manager is doing um you know we we just feel like it's better to hire somebody who can like be looking at the whole thing and um you know so it's not it's 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 a very sort of um grown-up way of approaching the show well, but we it's kind of helpful. in a strange way we all these years we were the musical director and we would like it's painstakingly hard. sit there and listen to the songs and be like hey you're gonna play that keyboard hook can you hear it right and it's cool when you have an outsider come in and listen with a fresh set of ears it's really it's like a director i mean they really are yeah kind of listening with a fresh set of ears and, and the best thing chris did for us was just take 60 percent of what we had been doing and just muted it he's like there you're ready for a live venue you do not need 80 tracks playing like you need one and also and to take our really old, exciting and and to take he our was able to do things that would have taken me days to do like on walking with a ghost i was like i still want to have that guitar riff off the top and you know i was thinking that he could like i was like wouldn't it be cool if it was just sampled and i could just play a sample of an electric guitar on stage and it's like five minutes later he's like all right it's on your cube you know it's we sent it over to you and i'm like damn it Damn it, damn it! And I was like, "Great!" It is. It is like modernizing the old music, so we don't just feel like we're up there, like (laughs) old school styles. Like, oh, we're a modern pop band now. Let's go back to two thousand two. Let's see how do we do? We get the amps out. Like, it's confusing, you know. Were were you scared walking with a ghost? And let's play that for for a second. Um, You've revamped it, so let's hear the original for a second. Everything has sans amp on it. My vocal, yeah. everything. They just ran the whole mix through sans amp. <laughs> so that guitar riff, you know, comes in in a minute here as an electric guitar riff, and right. all we did was sample it. Right. And then you just, we built from there. And uh, Andy was doing his version of, of "Walking with the Ghost" earlier. We won't, we won't, we won't make him good. Yeah, I'm not gonna it, do it. it, it, it. <laughs> Imagine it without a melody. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, I, I was imagining, listening to what you do with it now, which is, you know, you strip it down, it's kind of keyboard driven, it's, yeah. it's totally different. Was that a little scary to take this beloved song and, and play it like where fans would be like, you know, screw you, like I we want to hear, the, you know. I think the rule out there is, is as long as they can still sing along, fans Got enjoy it. hearing the new versions. What we don't like as an audience member, I think, is when you go and a song becomes not only unrecognizable, but also impossible to follow. And so our mm. rules 
our, our rule of thumb when we're rejigging an old song, and this has always been the way we look at it, is, is that it should still be the sort of the same arrangement, right? You should still be able to wait, like within a few seconds, go, "Oh my God, I know what this is," and then be able to sing along. It's also, I mean, this and is- again, it's decluttering, right? Like some of these songs, like for instance, we reworked um, a song called "Living Room," and this was a song that I like, knew she had- was going to move away from my song. I just want to say one thing about walking with okay. a ghost. Just one thing about walking with a ghost, because it's it. This is as the person who wrote it and had to sing it for the last you know like 12 years there is like complain nonstop. there's a joy (laughs) a true visceral joy when the song starts and my little hand doesn't have to do that riff (laughs) for two and a half minutes it's amazing how it just can free you up to be emotionally passionate and present in a song well the audience can feel that joy right like that's the thing again if it's recognizable and it's sing and it's I don't singable. even care about the audience. I'm just okay, like, well, if they didn't like it, I would be like, eat, you know, I would be like, I'm you, doing you it curse. this way. Eat, oh, eat shit! shit. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah. eat shit. I'm doing well, it but this okay. Way. As an outsider, when Sarah starts that song, Sarah's it's so visceral. Sarah's joy in that moment yeah. to be doing something oh, so new. Nice. You can see the audience react to that. So that's yeah. the key, right? You, you you do again to to bookend this interview with a Bruce Springsteen reference. His I think Bruce Springsteen is known for trying to give the audience a really great time, but it's very obvious he's having the best time of his life on stage. Yeah. That's why he's playing two extra hours than what the average band does and I think for Sarah and I that's always been our balancing act how do we reward our audience for being loyal for being supportive for being enthusiastic and coming out and seeing us but also have a great time on stage and they need to feel that you know you don't sustain a career as long as we have through so many different incarnations and collaborations without looking like you're having a great time and feeling like you're having a good time they can tell they know and I think for Sarah and I that's what bringing in a musical director or having more of a pop sound or taking a tour that's really out of left field it's joy it's capturing that joy and harnessing it and continuing to be Tegan and Sarah from for another day Uh, absolutely we asked on Twitter for some fan questions and a lot of them are just when are you going to play in my town? So we'll skip those. But, but Lisa, <laughs> that's mostly Come to Brazil. Fans, yeah. But, um, Lisa, Lisa Rocco um, wanted to know, may seem like an obvious question, but what, how does it feel when fans sing your songs back at you, which you were talking about? Pure joy. Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, sometimes actually, okay, here's a real honest answer. Of course, it's incredible, and it's it's so amazing. Sarah's a real curmudgeon um, today. No, right? I'm not a curmudgeon. I just feel like, it's like <laughs> I just don't like to feel like I'm I'm just giving the stock answer. It's like everybody yeah. says, of course, it's amazing. It's so cool. Um, but <laughs> but here's an interesting thing that I've noticed in in for a lot of bands is that it's like people don't actually know the words, and I don't know if it's because <laughs> it's because you're looking at them and their brains get stressed out. But I've noticed this a lot lately, and I notice notice this because a lot of the songs that people so enthusiastically sing along to are songs that we strip down acoustically, and they're Tegan songs, so I don't sing through a lot of them. And I watch people in the audience, and it's just mayhem. It's like people are singing the wrong words; they're out now of time. Now people are going to stop singing. No, you no, know it's what? beautiful. Is, it's a beautiful. Don't listen to Sarah, you guys. <laughs> sing, sing with your full heart. It's a beautiful collective moment. But then it makes me wonder: like, am I able to sing my favorite songs in a live setting properly? <laughs> Like, and I just, I found it really, really, it's an interesting collective uh, phenomenon that I've noticed a lot lately. Some people get it and they'll get like the right, they'll get like the pre-chorus, they'll like nail it and then we'll launch into the chorus and I'm like, no one knows what they're doing here. This is, this is a disaster. Um, and in, in our remaining minute, what are you thinking next? Cause you've, you've done the pop revamp, but like, and I don't Some, know, but if you if you have any ideas, throw them out because we're not sure. <laughs> sort of like a Mumford and Sons. Yeah, meets, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think that metal. I mean, we haven't done metal yet. We're kind of in a weird place where it's like you know, 
there's um there's a couple tracks out there right now like where some people are on the tr- like they'll just drop songs all the time and then there's other people who are being traditional about wanting to still make records it's funny when you get to eight records like this is something we've seen from a lot of big iconic artists is that they put out records that people just know they just don't connect to as much as the older music and I think Sarah and I that's part of revitalizing Tegan and Sarah every few years is that we don't want to become irrelevant you know yeah. we want to make sure that we're tapped into what people want so I don't think we have an answer about what comes next for Tegan and Sarah but I think when it does happen it will hopefully be what the audience wants you know ultimately we 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 want to feel that um that connection with with the Tegan and Sarah you know community that makes sense so got, yeah Mumford yeah. and Sons probably <laughs> yeah probably yeah <laughs> I got a combo between them and Coldplay a little Beyonce on top it's gonna be great Tegan and Sarah thank you so much for being here that was so fun it's thanks pleasure. for having us we'll be back with more Rolling Stone music now and, and an interview with vice presidential candidate Tim Kaine Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. I wanted to talk a little bit about music in this election. Um, it's sort of like talking about like literally the soundtrack to the apocalypse, but so it's, it maybe <laughs> it may seem a little trivial. But you know, what do you guys think of the way that Hillary, in particular, has or has not used pop culture and pop music? My feeling is that she has not used it as well as Obama has, but as Obama did in his campaigns. But what do you guys think? I mean, I feel like. It's more so the people coming to her, whereas Obama was very vocal about his favorite music and bringing in these musicians to, you know, campaign with him or work with him. And I feel like a lot of pop stars have flocked to Hillary, like Katy Perry has been probably the most vocal supporter in the pop world for her and has campaigned with her. So I feel like it's just sort of like a secondary thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and this is sort of the first election in a long time where the classic rock world they weren't really like campaigning with the, the Democrat. It's it's usually John Mellencamp and John Fogarty and Bruce Springsteen at these rallies. Like that's back to Al Gore and Kerry and Obama twice. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, we were talking before the show. I mean, one one aspect of this is that those aren't the voters maybe that Hillary right. needs or is, is going after. That it's mm-hmm. a different it's a different candidate in a different world. Uh, I think she may have seeded some of those voters to Trump, and she, what she's trying to do is is enter energize a whole different part of the electorate. Right. So different mm-hmm. artists, different world. Yeah. I mean, in the final days of Kerry in 04 and Obama in 08 and Obama in 12, it was Bruce Springsteen at the last three or four rallies, and that's not happening now, it and, seems like. And mm-hmm. now, uh, reportedly, uh, yeah. it might be Beyonce, right? Um, which is, you know, listen, the number one get in music. Um, it, it's interesting. I mean, what impact do you guys think that will have, Beyonce? I mean, I think that a lot of people were really 
judgmental when Hillary was like, I love lemonade because I felt like it was sort of pandering to her millennial voters and was like very um, buzzy thing for her to say. But I think this will be really great for the both the pop world and the political world to combine in that way and to have Beyonce, who is the biggest artist, you know, right now. But yeah, to have her do that. Yeah, it will get wall to wall news. It mm-hmm. will be on all three networks live probably. So it's just a good way in the final day of the campaign to bring out the biggest possible guns and just really just go for it. If indeed it happens. Yeah, if yeah. indeed it happens. What should she play? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy in love with Hillary. <laughs> yeah, it was Jay-Z at the... It, he, it was Jay-Z and Bruce Springsteen for Obama in mm-hmm. 2012. Right, so right. I wonder if, if, if he'll be there too. I think, you know, so I, I mean, Springsteen in particular, and the reason we keep coming back to him mm-hmm. in, in this context is that he was kind of the, the big get for the Obama... And you know, and, and, and with Kerry, uh, he he told me that he hadn't been asked to perform with Hillary. Now that Salon reported that he has been asked, but there's still no sign of him. We'll see. I mean, it, that still might happen. I'm convinced right. that maybe Hillary. That's just not who Hillary is going after. Right. And that's why he hasn't asked. She hasn't, yeah. The clock is really ticking. There's Saturday and Sunday and Monday. You know, mm-hmm. this, is, this is virtually over. So yeah, it's, I mean, the awkward Hillary saying she liked lemonade also raised a lot of questions <laughs> given, <laughs> given the subject matter. It's, it's, it's somewhat awkward. It feels like they told her to say she liked it, but maybe they sh- maybe she should have named a prior album or. <laughs> <laughs> or just, or just talked about the key changes on Love on Top, or, or yeah. just like, like, uh, like a I mean, huge fan of B Day. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, she should have gotten deep. Um, but it, it was also, I think, I also think some of it is that a lot of the enthusiasm in was with Bernie mm-hmm. um, in this yeah. sort of musical community, and then it took a while to to shift over. Yeah, I feel like classic rock's place has been a lot of artists were super supportive of Bernie, and then also it's been like a huge pushback with. Trump using so many songs and then a lot of these artists being like, please no. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's, it's funny that, that there is one, I'm sure there's other ones, but the only one that Kid Rock is, it was just like standing out there alone being like, Trump, it's like, <laughs> it's like a voice in the musical wilderness. Yeah. And I think the part of it, there were months and months in which Hillary seemed to have this just in the bag, right? She was up by 10 points. Sure. Stage, stage, stage. They actually didn't need that last push, but now that's it's tightening. There may be more of an effort to please get Beyonce just fast, yeah. as soon as possible. We need Beyonce. And then on to uh, Tim Kaine, who we'll be yeah. hearing from in a minute. Uh, he is not just a music fan, not yeah. just he is, he should be working at Rolling yeah, Stone, possibly. <laughs> it was really surprising when they told me I'd be talking to him about his five favorite bands. I was surprised at even that. Then they emailed me the list, and I go, wait, he lists Corner Shop? <laughs> the really, it's a 90s Britpop band that's really obscure in, in this country. And I knew that he liked the replacements. But when he got on the phone with me and started really talking about them as a passionate fan and was quoting the lyrics to the songs and everything, it was it, it was astounding. I mean, he's a real music nut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, it's interesting because he seemed a lot more confident and happy talking to you than he did in the vice presidential debate. So maybe it should have been like just a music trivia contest and he would have, he would have, destroy, he would have destroyed yeah, Pence. Yeah, he would definitely win. He was able to quote Bastards of Young by the replacements just off the dome, which yeah. is crazy. What do you think, Hillary? Do, do you think Hillary is a music fan? She likes Adele. Yeah. That, um, yeah she went to the concert, vocal. right? She yeah. went to the concert, yeah. and she also, um, she's mentioned a lot of like Motown. Um, I know Stevie Wonder just saying happy birthday to her. Yeah. So she has I, a lot of those. I saw I saw Bill and Hillary when you two played at the Garden on about a, about a year ago, mm. and I was watching her 
the entire night because I was just sort of fascinated by her watching you two. Creepy, Andy. (laughs) She was behind me. I just kept turning around. And she didn't really stand till the very end, but she seemed engaged by it. What song did she respond to most passionately? I think both the Blue Skies, she stood up. Huh. (laughs) I swear to God. Because that's the one about, uh, you know, U.S. intervention in in Latin America. So so, so interesting. Uh, Maybe this is is for those who are worried that Hillary is too hawkish. (laughs) She supports both the Blue Skies. Yeah, she she was like... Play the guitar, Ed. Play the blues. Play the blues. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Um, so, in a minute, we are going to play an interview that uh, Andy Green conducted with Senator Tim Kaine uh, about Kaine's incredibly <laughs> detailed and geeky music tastes. Um, it was. It was a. It seems like it was a really good conversation, right? Yeah, it was fun talking to him. I mean, I just, just can't imagine that Joe Biden or like Hannibal Hamlin or past vice presidents <laughs> would have this much interest in <laughs> modern music. I mean, it was bizarre. So uh, the first question that Andy asked him was, "What is the role of music in your day to day life?" And here's what Tim had to say. Um, yeah. So I, I music is one of my two or, or one of my three great sources of. Of relaxation so it's it's music it's the outdoors and it's reading so um, I listen to music a lot um, you know I've got my my all my songs downloaded on my smartphone I listen to music a lot but um, I also really enjoy playing music so you know I play the harmonica and carry six harmonicas with me in my briefcase and I end up playing a lot of music as a statewide candidate, when I was running for governor, I started to play with bluegrass bands around Virginia because we have so many music festivals. And then once people, you know, saw that I would do it, even though I'm not great, they were like, well, yeah, come on up for a song. So I have, uh, I, I play a lot of music, I listen to a lot of music, and the, the part of the day that I look forward to the most is usually when we're heading home from our last event. Like yesterday, we finished up at 10 o'clock uh, a dinner and st louis and then we're going to fly back to richmond and we get on the campaign plane and plug in a speaker and then everybody takes turns trying to impress each other with some song that we want everybody to hear and it's just a way to really unwind and and enjoy ourselves cool so i want to talk to you about the five artists that you picked for your for your five favorites it's hard to pick five i wish you'd ask me for 20 sorry but five is tough well it's a cool list so just i want to start on the replacements can you tell me how you discovered them um yeah, let's let me think about that. When was the first time I heard a replacement tune? I, I think the first uh, album of theirs that I I heard was Hoot and Annie, mm-hmm. and I can't exactly remember how I got it, but uh, that wasn't their first album. I think that might have been their second album. But mm-hmm. I really loved that album. The combination of really good songwriting and kind of an endearingly amateurish quality to to some of the way they do stuff I really loved and so became a huge fan of theirs never saw them in concert um, but pretty much all the albums after Hootenanny I have and um, I just I think Paul Westerberg is a great songwriter and the guys have just a a really unique uh, ability to do good music with lyrics that are really meaningful and I've just I just read there's a really good uh, kind of a story of the band called Trouble Boys that's come out, a writer named Bob Mir, M-E-H-R, I think writes for the Memphis newspaper, just a, a book about the replacements. Oh, yeah. One of my sons and I are trading around, because one of my kids is a huge replacements fan, too. He, he actually lives in Minneapolis. Yeah. So uh, they, have, they have always been, really, since they started putting out those albums in the 80s, they've been a huge favorite of mine. Yeah, I just love Paul's singing voice. He's one of my favorite singers of all time, really. Yeah, Genius. and, you know, just the, 
lyrically, they're so fantastic that uh, um, I, I was listening to Bastards of Young the other day. Um, the ones who the ones who love us best are the ones we'll lay to rest and visit their graves on holidays at best. The ones who love us least are the ones we'll die to please. If it uh, if it's any consolation, I can't believe I can't begin to understand. I mean, he just really writes very very good lyrics. Right, and the whole group was so brief. They were one of those groups that just burned bright and just burned out. It was this little flash yeah, of genius. Yeah. And and that book about him is a is a sad book. I mean, it's right. a cool book. It tells you the story about particular songs, but they all had their own demons from right. how they came up, um, and then they had their own you know challenges together. But uh, you know, they're they're a great story of of people who had a, a creative synergy uh, where they were, the whole was greater than the sum of the parts, and it, they just really made great music. Right. All right. I want to talk a, about the Carter family now. So, what do they appeal to you? Yeah, when I was a kid in Kansas City growing up, um, a friend of mine who was a pretty good guitar player, and I was playing the harmonica, uh, played the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band album, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, for me once. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I just, I loved that album. I hadn't heard any kind of bluegrass or mountain music growing up when I did. And mo many of the songs on that album are Carter Family songs, including the, the title track, obviously. And I started to kind of get into the Carter family. Of course, I had no connection with Virginia then. I'm, I was a Midwesterner. But when I met a Virginian from the Appalachian part of our state, my wife Anne in law school, and then we moved back to Virginia, that the fascination with mountain and bluegrass music really took hold because there's so many festivals here. And um, the Carter family all came out of Scott County, Virginia, down near Bristol. And they have this thing called the Carter Fold, which is their farm where they still have a really cool music venue that's kind of a converted barn, and they have great musical performances. So over the years, I've uh, gone to the Carter Fold a couple of times, and as I say, spend a lot of time playing bluegrass. So many of the great bluegrass tunes are either Carter family tunes or tunes that the Carters found from others. They were they were great, you know, kind of like a musical archivists of uh, 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 especially um, Mother Maybell, because she learned to play guitar in this really interesting style. And so they, you know, they just collected great music, and they they play a lot of great tunes. Some of their melodies are, have become other people's tunes, like Woody Guthrie's "This Land Is Your Land" is based on a Carter family's tune. So right. I just think that's kind of like the the foundation of mountain and bluegrass music, and almost everything traces back to the Carters in one way or the other. And I play a lot of Carter Family music uh, on the harmonica and with bluegrass bands everywhere. All right. How about Dave Matthews Band? You know, they're they're a favorite for a lot of reasons. Their, their musicianship is just amazing. And I actually was with Dave yesterday. He did a concert for our ticket in Denver. And um, I've gotten to know Dave pretty well over the years, and especially Boyd Tinsley, who's the uh, violin player for the band. As you know, they, they uh, formed and and really came to prominence in Charlottesville, and most of the band still lives there. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that uh, just their combination of an unusual instrumentation for a rock band, fantastic musicianship, Dave is a great writer and a great singer. Um, they, they just always do things that, you know, will, will really interest you. He's also written some great political music, even though it's not, it's not kind of super sledgehammer, it's not didactic, but he does a lot of tunes that have really good uh, political 
Uh, he does really, you know, intimate love tunes. He does songs about mental illness. I mean, he, he really has a breadth as a songwriter that I think is pretty astounding. Yeah. Uh, I, I was most surprised to see Corner Shop on your list. So tell me about how you first heard them. Yeah, you know, I was reading a Rolling Stone sometime in the mid-'90s, and they had a review of their album, uh, When I Was Born for the Seventh Time. And I got it, and then, you know, have have just proceeded to buy virtually everything they produce. They're, they're kind of odd. They, don't, they will go years without producing anything. They don't really tour very much. I've, I've never seen them. I would love to see them sometime, but the number of live shows they do is very small. But the, the mixture, I don't know exactly what you would call them. I mean, it's kind of a mixture of, uh, of uh, you know, Indian Bollywood music and, and, and hip-hop and, um, you know, kind of funk music. They're just, they're a very unique band, and I really like that uh, Tejinder sing the main guy's voice. I like the songs that he writes. And um, so, I, yeah, it was probably, I don't know, 95 or 96 that I first heard uh, their music, but I really, really enjoy them. Yeah, and to most Americans, they're totally unknown. I mean, they're really obscure here. So yeah, they. I don't. I don't know that they've ever come to the United States to perform. I mean, I, I will go on their website on occasion just to see if they are coming over here to perform. Mm-hmm. But they do so few live shows. Um, right. So they're kind of. I don't know. They're kind of perfectionists. That they're. You know, they're really focused on. They do what they want when they want it, but they're um, they're on they're working on their own plan and their own time schedule. They're definitely not working on a commercial time schedule. Yeah, and the fusion of genres is so unique. I've I have never heard, I have never heard a band quite like that before. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, the first time I heard that song uh, "Wog," which is off, I think uh, "Woman's Got to Have It." It's the album mm-hmm. before when I was born for the seventh time. I just thought these guys are just doing something that I've not heard anybody else do. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, they do some interesting covers. They, they've done a great cover of a, a wonderful kink song, Waterloo Sunset. They did the, oh, wow. they did the uh, cover of uh, Norwegian Wood sung in Hindi, which mm-hmm. is just a spectacular, very true to, very true to Nor- the Norwegian Wood, except that it's sung in Hindi. But, the, you know, they do some great covers, but their, their um, original music is, you know, again, always... Always got something surprising, something that you haven't heard before. Great, and I want to end on Charlie Parker. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge traditional jazz fan, so I, I I love jazz music, but especially traditional jazz. And you know, I would go Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, uh, uh, Chet Baker, um, Sonny Rollins, Dizzy Gillespie, kind of those guys. But but Parker, I grew up in Kansas City, and so the Kansas City jazz scene was something that you know you become aware of pretty early. And Parker's, you know, commitment to, I hear music this particular way. And, uh, you know, he was not, not thought in Kansas City as a very good musician because he just kind of kept wanting to do something different than everybody else. And his, his you know, endless work to kind of came up, to come up with what became the pop style of jazz was really revolutionary. And, you know, he was like, this is the way I hear it, and whether you like it or not, this is the way I'm going to play it. Very tragic life, obviously, but his his commitment to his own um, sound was was really uh, strong, and I, I have a huge admiration for him. And I, I just his his music still today uh, is very very uh, unique, and uh, and he also was a not just a good player, but he was a really good composer. So 
a lot of his songs like Relaxing at Camarillo or you know some of the others, Cool Blues, Hot Blues, many other musicians perform them. And then and when they do, you can see that the guy wasn't just a great sax player, he was also a really good writer. Yeah, it's amazing to think that he died at, at, at just 34. I mean, he was so young, yeah. so it was all so brief. Really amazing. Yeah, and and but really had a you know a, a huge influence that still is really felt in jazz and in other musical forms too. I I sort of I don't know that you would have a you know a Jimi Hendrix if you hadn't had Bop Jazz. The that that style of playing I think had a lot of influence on on rock styles too. And um, you know jazz is j- jazz and and you know bluegrass are the two I think the two great American music forms and. I would, you know, I'd put Charlie Parker right at the top. Oh, great. I think that should do it, Senator. So thank you so much. It was an honor speaking with you. Yeah, this was great. Glad we could do it. So tell me something fun you're working on right now. Are you, you know, you following a particular group or seen a good show recently? Give give me something I ought to be listening to. I'm doing a story on this Desert Trip Festival that was just in California that was Paul McCartney and the Stones and the Who and Bob Dylan. Yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. I was out there in L.A. and San Francisco over the weekend. Mm-hmm. I didn't go out to see the show, but a lot of people that I was meeting had been out for part of it. Yeah. It sounded like pretty pretty special. Oh, yeah, and like Bob Dylan's set was amazing. He played songs that he hadn't played in decades, and it was really incredible. And were they playing with each other? So did like Neil Young play with Bob Dylan and the different groups kind of doing a little bit of It was only Neil and Paul McCartney. They played A Day okay. in the Life, which was, which was pretty sensational. Wow, wow. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Well, good. Uh, Listen, good to talk. Yeah, it it, it was fantastic. So thank you so much, Senator, and take care. Okay, thanks, Andy. Bye. So that was uh, Senator Tim Kaine and uh, non-Senator Andy Green (laughs) uh, talking about music. And I love that you told him about Bob Dylan's uh, set list at Desert Trip, and he seemed pretty interested in it, actually. Yeah, that was pretty weird. And the guys in Corner Shop, they were very excited about this. This is now all. This is this is a huge part of their Twitter now and on their <laughs> website. They they are so thrilled. I mean, this is the most attention they've gotten in the states, but possibly ever. <laughs> <laughs> that's they had a very big hit. I don't you, think that's true. A, but a yeah, pretty yeah. small hit in the states. Yeah, right, yeah. it was. It was on the anyway. This is this is a, <laughs> this could be on our our new show, Distinctions Without a Difference, that's where right. we argue about things that don't matter at all. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> I don't think they had like a top forty hit. In the states. <laughs> it was. It was <laughs> I mean, I can check. It was, I'm, I'm, I'm it was on a lot. It was anyway. That, um, like alternative radio, not yes. any mainstream. Alternative radio was very important back then. It was a different time. Yeah, that is anyway, true. That is anyway, <laughs> um, important stuff. We had a great show today. We had uh, Tegan and Sarah on, uh, who, were, who were delightful. And uh, then we had this Tim Kaine interview. So that's going to be it for this week. See you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.